0: Bob, I'm really excited. Last week, we had Dr. James Hawkins talking to us about pursuing emotional health in the midst of leading to the crisis of COVID. Do you remember COVID? Do you remember when that was the thing that the news talked about and that was the thing that caused stress and anxiety? And already, we released that episode and it was almost immediately outdated because this is not the moment of crisis that I feel like we needed to address. and So, so Bob, I'm excited. I want to I jump right in. Let's do it. Uh, we, we've asked Dr. Hawkins to come back on again and speak with us. And so James, real quick, just in case somebody didn't catch last week, let, just kind of introduce yourself to us, set the conversation up with that way.
1: All right, I'm going to jump into the—I'll start, like, jump right into the deep end then, Jimbo. Uh, so James Hawkins, a PhD in psychology and counseling from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. My wife and I do a marriage ministry, and I really this new things coming on that, but a more excellent way. And the heart behind a more excellent way, we mainly do marriage stuff, but really the heart behind it is from First Corinthians 13, about the whole body of Christ coming together, and we can have all of these beautiful gifts. But Paul says, but I got to show you the most excellent way. And he goes on and talks about love. And that even if, you know, anyway, I could go into a whole sermon, I'm going to stop there. But so, uh, and I'm a, so I'm a therapist here in Northwest Arkansas, Fayetteville area, and uh, I'm glad to be here with you. But let me take the, the deep jump, So to because we're going to be talking about race or ethnicity today. So I come from a very complicated past, and I don't even know if Jimbo or you know this story about me. But so my grandparents, they def- they came from the South, and they moved from the South to the North to raise their family. Well, on my, gr- on my grandfather's side of the family, I always wondered, why does my... great-grandmother looks so much different than the rest because pretty much you would think like when people and my friends would see pictures like how is your great-grandmother white that makes no sense to me and i remember like asking my family as a young boy and they wouldn't really talk about it but then as i got older i was like look y'all gotta shoot straight with me why does great-grandmother look like she's white and they said well this is a product of slavery Mm -hmm. that the slave masters would have had sex with her (laughs) mother and that's where she comes about or you know and it's just uh, to see that line in my family that you know from down in the genealogy there that that like I have this like the blood of slaves and slave masters in my family line. Mm-hmm. So this is something that's very near and dear to my heart.
0: Well, James, I've known you for I don't know, I guess a little more than 10 years now as mm-hmm. we were in seminary around the same time and I have always seen you speak very boldly yet very eloquently, and Mm. very clearly on this topic in a way that is biblical, compassionate, Mm. and convicting. And Mm -hmm. and so I I literally can't think of a better person to bring on to this podcast and just ask. So I'm just going to go ahead and ask my first question. As a white pastor who leads a predominantly white congregation, and my church specifically is in a racially divided neighborhood, if you look at our church and you look to the south, you see a African-American community. If you look to the north, you see a Anglo community and the church itself is the dividing line and mm. been working for six and a half years to try to bridge some of that, mm-hmm. sometimes very painfully and sometimes with some sweet victories. Mm. And so it's hard to know sometimes how do we lead well in the midst of all of this? Because the whole thing is overwhelming and obviously tense, which is why they call it racial tension, Uh, how do we as believers, as pastors lead well in this current climate of racial tension, division, and all the conversation happening about it? Right now,
1: man, I love the way I definitely love the way you did the second question because I never want this to come across as Jimbo and Bob have brought this black guy on here to tell white guys how to get this right because that's not true. Uh, But I know sometimes I've done this talk, Jimbo, and that's how some people they take it and it it just brings up all kinds of defensiveness. But that's not what it's about. But the way you you reframed it really is, hey James, you've been walking in this arena for a while. And some of us have not had that benefit because of certain circumstances. So let me, can I frame, I want to frame that contest for a quick second so we get to the how we lead well. Some of the reason why we are in the moment, why we are where we are now is because of past sin. And I'm not trying to like still hold us in condemnation to that past sin, but that past sin has set us up for moment, for these moments of tension that we're facing now. And what I mean about it, even how you just divide, how you were able to so cleanly, Jimbo, to divide your community, just not you divide it, but like to recognize the divide. Well, we recognize that even from slavery, in slavery, uh, Blacks and, and Blacks and Anglos lived in close proximity, but that was definitely not an equal a mutual relationship. But they were kind of in close proximity, but they were still so separate. Two different classes, different cultures, one human, one considered not human, one worthy of god's salvation and freedom. one maybe we could we could share the gospel with you it, it's like kind of I think it was either Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield. they made the comment, their soul can be saved, but their body still belongs to the master. And that's how we parse it out in theology. And I still love the work of, of Jonathan Edwards, even though theolog- that in this part, they compromise the gospel because of cultural pressure. But what happens is, is, even through slavery, and then once the slaves are freed, all of a sudden now, we are now definitely, we are separate now that now there's not even that proximity that there was in slavery. And so we're distant. And then you roll on through Jim Crow and different things and redlining and segregation and how we now create these separate communities. And so but the vestiges, you would say, well, Jim Crow was done away with in the 50s or 60s. Let that sink in your mind. That's not really that long ago. Like our grandparents and parents were alive for that. So that, so that even those things that happened then, those communities are still segregated pretty much along those lines for the most part. And what that allows us to do is to create separate school systems. And also our churches also followed that segregation line. Churches tend to pull, especially during that time, you know, now people are willing to drive past churches to go to a church. But earlier on, people went to the church that was in their community. So if you were in a white community, you would be going to a white church. If you were in a black community, you go to a black church. So now we're even still doing our theology in worship of God. We still, uh, if we're into the fifties, maybe even sixties, and we still, catch this symbol, we are still not together as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. And even why many denominations became segregated is because Anglo worshipers did not want their African slaves worshiping with them or that once they were free, they didn't want them worshiping with them, right? They were kicked out of the churches and they had to go start their own denominations. So we as the church in America have not really done mutual together theology, worship, and fellowship together yet. And so while we're in this racial tension now though is we have groups that don't know each other, Finally coming into close proximity with each other. And now we're just not beginning to, we're supposed to be close, but we're not. And we have all this trauma in our past and past relationship that we have not dealt with. And we're dealing, we're trying to deal with trauma with strangers. So that creates a very complicated moment. And so for many of the pastors that are probably listening to this, Jimbo, they probably have no idea of how that system was set. Ha, the system has set them up to not know, how the system has set them up to not be able to know how to engage and to find the words. So you take these pastors that you work with, who have probably spent many of years and hard hours practicing to become pastors and studying theology and God's word and church administration, and they become like they feel capable. And then all of a sudden you throw them into something, especially as men, we do this anyway, you throw them into something where they don't feel incapable it brings up all kinds it's like they don't we don't like to feel inadequate we don't like to feel like we don't know something we don't like to feel like we're in a one down or kind of a weak place and so what we tend to do is not even that it's theological sometimes we tend to push this conversation back not because the I want to be car- I want to say this because you don't do it because you're racist and I know that that's the other voice that happens out there in society you're not talking about this because you are racist well Hear me hear James say this clearly. I think this was something that was set that you were set up for this moment without your own awareness, and it is not your fault. However, you are in this moment at such a time as this. Now the question is, is will you be faithful to God in this moment? Mm. And what will you do with this moment? And what will you do? Even if I had a pastor from a real church, Jimbo, to kind of jump back into your question now. And he says, But James, I'm at an all-white church. And I said, Well, have you ever thought about why your church is all white and how it got to be that way? Okay. He says, fair point. And then it's like, well, but do your people work in, do, they may live in all white communities. I'll give you that. But when they go to work, is everyone they work with white? Do you only tell them to go and share the gospel with people who are white? The world that we live in, is it all white? No, you're not called to only pastor your church for Sunday morning. You're called to pastor your your church for the kingdom of God. And if the kingdom of God is multi-ethnic, that is your job as a pastor. If you're only doing Sunday morning, I don't really fair say, and I know this is going to be hard, but I'm okay to put a little pressure. Then you're not really pastoring. You're just, you're conducting a group event. Mm. If that's all you're trying to do is do Sunday morning and even let's go bigger than just for the like, being a part of God's kingdom here as it resides. We know that revelation says that before the throne of God will be people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. So I know people say, well, race isn't biblical. So I don't I use the term race and we are one race, but the, the but the Bible does use the word ethnos. Mm-hmm. And if scripture is God breathed and if we really believe that it's God breathed and that the Holy spirit knew what he was doing when he inspired the writers, And if the writers were so specific to mention ethnic groups, then that must mean something to the heart of God. Or if we want to remove that and say, everybody's just the same, then we're saying that the scripture really isn't God breathing. God just made mistakes by throwing details in there that didn't need to be there. Like, it's so specific. And I think what happens, and I know I'm going all around with your question, Jimbo, so I hope you're all liking this. Y'all look like you're listening to me. But what we don't do sometimes in theological education is help pastors see these ethnic moments. So it's not even all the pastor's fault why they don't know. We have failed to, uh, to properly train and disciple our pastors to even recognize this through the lens of scripture that we know that God, he does create out of one race, Adam, but in God's sovereignty, he chose us to make all of the eth- these different ethnic groups. And then when the ethnic groups reject him, he says, you know what? I'm going to make my own people and I'm going to put my own culture on those people, but I'm going to use that one particular group because I want to draw all the groups back to me, but I'm going to use this one. And he's being specific here. And then you watch the New Testament come in, and Jesus is even being specific about ethnic groups. He's like, yep, I'm called to the Jews, but he has this encounter with a Samaritan woman, with a Roman centurion. you know. And so he's having these specific ethnic encounters, and he's saying, "Like, I do have a primary responsibility to the ethnic group of the Jews, but the gospel and the kingdom is going to go to all people. And people who were not called mine before will be mine. And then you see the disciples take this up even on the day of Pentecost. We just celebrated Pentecost after this. And I had some African-American pastors call me and said they were hurt. And they said that they, never, they didn't hear their white brothers and brothers share in their churches on Pentecost about what was going on in America. And many of the pastors would say, well, it was Pentecost. Pentecost is the exact moment where all of a sudden you have everybody hearing the gospel for the first time in their own language mm. it's crossing ethnic groups the first part acts is all about still one ethnic group god still like i'm giving you your chance i'm giving you a chance but then all of a sudden there's this switch the the book of acts switches now the gospel now is going out to all people groups paul is going into the gentiles peter goes to cornelius's house and all of a sudden it's like the and then the church is having their, an ethnic tension like you said jimbo All of a sudden, it's like there's these Greek Jews, and they're like, they're not taking care of us because we're Greek Jews, and we're not 100% Jews like they are. And Peter and them having to figure out, how do I deal with this ethnic tension, right? And so they were even having to figure it out. And I'm just giving that to all give these pastors context. This is a difficult thing that you're dealing with in the moment, but you are not alone. You are still following a biblical example and mandate. The saints before you have dealt with this. This is not something that the left made up in in America now. This is not media driven. We do not fight against flesh and blood, but against spiritual uh, powers in high places. Satan's scheme is not new. There is nothing new under the sun. So just go ahead and join in the kingdom of God. You are a part of the kingdom of God and what he is doing. And so how do you do that as a pastor? One, I think you have to be able to then examine your own heart and say, how does my particular ethnic group, and how I've been raised, how has it affected how I see the world and how I see scripture? Do I read scripture? And we sometimes we don't recognize because if we only have one perspective growing up, we've maybe if you've grown up and you've been able to only be raised in a church where it's, it's predominantly or all white, then you go to seminary, it's predominantly or all white. The friends and the people you mingle with are predominantly or all white. And everything that you take in is that way then we can easily become blinded and not recognize that we're filtering the scripture through a lens other than the kingdom of heaven. And we don't recognize it. And then that sets us up for blind spots, And then that also sets us up for difficult moments for when someone else experiences something differently. How do we join them? Because for what happens, I think for many pastors, Jimbo, is that they're not racist and it's not that they don't care. It's just, once again, I don't know. And then what happens is as their churches are becoming more multi-ethnic, what happens is when they don't know, they don't go get training, education, they don't go get experience. And so what happens for the minorities in their congregation, they are on their own without a shepherd in certain moments. And so that's why you kind of see some of these tense moments come up. And then when that that minority group raises more pressure within the church, then sometimes they're the one's labeled as the problem, where sometimes the pastor doesn't examine Hey, I've got blind spots that I haven't addressed yet in my life. And it doesn't mean the pastor's a bad person. I mean, for me, Jimbo, part of the beauty for me going to NLBTS, up until that point, I had been in predominantly black churches. Now, I had been in the military. I I learned what it was to work with uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic backgrounds. But going to seminary, I was taken out of a comfort zone for me. And I got to walk faithfully with other brothers and sisters in Christ who had learned and studied theology and did worship different than how I did growing up. And I took their perspective on and added it to what God was already doing in my life. I get trained in counseling. I learn from the people I counsel. I learn from friends around me. And Nicole and I have been super intentional. We have always joined churches that are multi-ethnic. We have been super intentional because we don't ever want, this is just for us, at least. This is our conviction. We want them to see the kingdom of God coming together on Sunday morning, and that even despite of our differences, we're able to come in unity under the banner of Christ. Mm. I want them to see that visible representation here on earth and that it can happen. So I don't know. So that's just a little bit when I think about how, um, is I think some of these pastors need to be able to take some time and read and learn. So I'm going to mention a book. And this book can be controversial just because of the author. But if you really read the book, though, I want to tell pastors, read the book for what it is, because one conservative writer said, hey, I don't like this guy and some of the things he does outside the book, but his book is historically accurate. And the book is called The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. And Jamar Tisby was, he was was a Reformed theologian. Well, he was studying to be a Reformed theologian. He switched out of that to get his PhD in history. And what he wanted to do, and it's really, I call it a trauma history, Jimbo. What he does is he talks about what he calls how the church was, com- the American church was complicit with racism. And he does it not to shame the church, but to say, we have a past in which we compromise, and we don't need to keep repeating those same patterns in the patterns in the present and i'm not i don't i'm not referring people this book to shame but it is to say hey there are some and i, re- I respect this conservative reviewer who said historically he's act he's on point he's telling the truth here and i think just some pastors need to know that because some of the members of the church will be aware of some of those facts when they come into their church so i could go on and on about that answer and that's just one question james one of the realities we face is that some congregations are really reluctant to begin to look at their own experience and to examine what they don't know. Mm -hmm. And they're fearful of what's being said in the
0: culture. And so they want to go to a simple answer or or simple conclusions that just lead
1: them to a place where they don't have to deal with it anymore. And Mm -hmm. there's some entire congregations that are that's true for. How does a pastor lead that congregation forward to, to see things from God's perspective, to examine their own biases when they're reluctant to do so? So the first thing I want to say to those pastors, to those church members, and I think the pastor can follow this same thing, that fear and the reluctance actually does make sense. I know that's not what people might expect me to say. Just like I said for the pastor, we as people don't like going into the unknown. This is something we talked about on the COVID podcast. The unknown is scary, and especially if the unknown is bringing up a message that seems to threaten how I've come to view the world. And we can all kind of build these messages and narratives about what the world is that comfort us, that give us a sense of identity. And then when something comes up that threatens that sense of identity, it's not just about it, we don't, our bodies and our souls don't re- just respond to it like it's a threat to our identity. We think that we're only responding to we're defending our truth. But really what people don't recognize is they feel like it's a fight for their sense of self. They are fighting for their personal sense of self. And I'm not going to say that's all bad. But the key is sometimes when I fight for myself, I can miss the kingdom of God. And I hope like, and I hope that's, you know, Jimbo, why you trust me is I'm not fighting for James, the black man. I'm fighting for the kingdom of God. And if the kingdom of God is super in- intentional about the ethnic groups coming together, therefore, I will fight for it. So on the reluctance, I want to validate that reluctance makes so much sense because it can feel like a threat to your sense of self and how you've come to understood the world. And then I want to say this. Yeah, I'll say it just so bluntly. If it seems like I, as a white person, the only way I'm allowed to join in this conversation is that somehow I've got to cop to that I'm a racist, then no, I'm not going to want to join that conversation. If that's the only way I have to join into this is I've got to say, yeah, I'm a horrible person, I'm despicable, and everyone who's ever come before me and my family are despicable people, and everyone I love, they're all bad people, then no, I'm going to be reluctant to to join in that conversation. So for me, hear it from me, I'm not even saying that's how we have to join in. And so I want to validate as that pastor, we have to be able to validate our, our our parishioner's reluctance. Sometimes what I've seen some pastors do Bob, on this is when they kind of get some awareness around this topic, they start kind of almost shaming people for not understanding and seeing what they see. Hmm. So you can't do that. Just like how you probably had to go to a journey to come and learn whatever it is you learned or what you understood. Be patient and recognize it's the same thing for you and recognize and be willing to validate their defense, their, their their reluctance and their defensiveness. And sometimes people just have to take some time where you give them information and you let them go away. Take a few moments to breathe. They might come back and blame you and tell you that you as a pastor, this is what usually happens to pastors who try this. Oh, you've got that liberal left agenda. They've brainwashed you. The media has told you all of this. And that's the only place it's coming from. And it makes sense because what we do when we feel threatened, we need something to blame. We need something to blame and to protect us. So of course they're going to do that. So pastors just need to be able to be patient with themselves and with their people as they try and do this. And so um, what I try to do with people when I do this top Bob, is I ask them to tell me about their fears. So when I used to go into a church or a group and they say, let's talk about it. I'd say, first, before we get into the content, I want everyone to go around and I want you to share with me. What are some of your fears with this topic? But also tell me what are some of your hopes Mm. and your longings with this topic? Like, What are your hopes and your longings for the kingdom of God around this topic? Because that's a more vulnerable place to talk to. I want to honor their fear first, because if I can't meet them in their fear, they won't let me see their hope and their longing. As long as fear stays in place, people will stay protective. But if I can honor people's fear, they'll drop their protection and let me see their vulnerability. And then we can have something productive happen. So that's still going into the, how can we help that reluctant church? You just have to be patient and loving and massage it and then be willing to find good resources to help them in their journey and to that they can trust and that are faithful and that will care for your people as they walk on this journey. And as Jimbo talked about healing conversations, that's the mission I believe I've been given from God is to create space for people to struggle in the conversation from black, white, Hispanic, um, one of the people that helped me start it, she's from Malaysia. The other person who helped me start is from Northeast Arkansas. And I got I, I, I intentionally surrounded myself with people who see the world differently than me.
0: Just real quick. So we, we've got uh, maybe about five, six minutes left. Kind of set up for us what Healing Conversations is. And we're going to put in the show notes a link to a video, which I'm assuming is your most popular video from Healing Conversations at the moment. I looked at it today and it had over 10,000 views, and uh, I think I'd shared it about 5,000 times so. Uh,
1: <laughs> think there we can, go that's where all the views came from.
0: Or half of those no but I I so appreciated how eloquently and, and clearly you articulated the importance of empathy and you talked about not giving a still face to oh, uh, yeah. to anger so mm-hmm. just kind of around the last few minutes kind of set up what is healing conversations and then talk mm-hmm. to us about Just, and then we'll link the video to give the whole thing, but Mm -hmm. just that the importance of empathy and the importance of how we respond when people express anger and hurt in the midst of all of this.
1: Okay. So with that, so Healing Conversations is about helping people to create space. And particularly what we did, we did a pilot program where we brought uh, different churches and parachurch organizations together across uh, ethnic lines. And we brought them together to intentionally jump into the deep end of the vulnerability around the talk of race. And what I believe why the church usually gets stuck, and I I aim particularly at the church, why we get stuck is because we can't even have the conversation. And because we can't have, and so sometimes we want to jump to these solutions, but we've never dealt with the pain. We've never dealt with the guilt. We've never dealt with those things. And so you could jump. It's kind of like a, a, in a family, I've probably dealt with this as pastors when the husband maybe did something wrong or the wife did something and they just try and do some grand gesture to make everything okay. It's like, ah, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I did it. Let's not talk about it. Uh, let me take you away on a vacation. Okay. They wife could, they go on a vacation. It seems fun for a while, but then we know, That 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 thing was never dealt with. And then the moment another conflict comes up, boom, it springs back up. And then the person's like, but I did this grand thing. I took you on that vacation. I bought you this new thing. You know, you shouldn't bring it up anymore. But it's like we never dealt with it. We never really dealt with it. So healing conversations about helping ha- people have success in vulnerable conversations, so they can move forward in unified action. And so, going back to that part where you talk about the still face. So I'm putting in the context of probably, and I don't know what your demographic is that that listens to you, Jimbo, but I'm going to go with it's probably predominantly white. So what usually happens in, in that pastor who's leading, and he's probably doing just like you, Jimbo, trying to make. Uh, inroads into a multi-ethnic community and that person's in their church and what happens is something like this happens and they're hurting and they're angry and they come to the pastor and they are angry. And then what happens sometimes is it catches the pastor or the leader off guard and it shocks their system a little bit and they don't know what to say. And let me go behind what they don't know what to say. What many of my friends have shared with me, Jimbo, is I do freeze up because I'm scared not just of protecting myself and getting it wrong, but some of them the fear is I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing and causing more pain, which actually makes so much sense. It's like they got into pastoring to help people, not to hurt them. So I'm afraid of saying something that's going to cause more pain, and that makes complete sense. But then, with, or sometimes they do do it to comfort themselves. But what happens is, is when you go away in your fear, and that person's in their anger, and we know that under the anger is probably hurt, fear. But when you go away and you can't be with them there, it just registers as a huge drop. It's kind of like a trust fall. I trusted you. I poured out my heart to you, and you let me hit the ground. I fell flat on my face. And it's kind of like Charlie Brown and, you know, kicking the football. It's like I'm not going to try and do it anymore. I tried with you one time when Ahmaud Arbery got killed. I tried again with you when Breonna Taylor got killed. I'm not going to try it again with this joint voice because you're going to move the ball and I'm going to fall flat on my back. Not going to do it again. Mm -hmm. That's what we mean by a still face. It's like when I cry to reach out for help and you just go flat on me and don't respond to me. Or the other way, sometimes what some pastors do that that really hurts, because I had a friend that called me from the Hispanic community and was sharing. I tried to bring it up and what I got back in turn was, Oh, well, yeah, we're all going through it. It's rough for all of us. Can you catch how that lands? It's I'm not with you as a person anymore. I took it out and generalized it out to the general public. Because really, it's like, and the person felt like, are you just trying to make me go away? Why can't you talk to me? I'm right here in front of you. Talk to me. I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to you. Mm -hmm. Right here. Person to person. James, I really do appreciate you coming on
0: here. This really isn't long enough, obviously, to adequately address the topic. So, I cannot recommend highly enough if I if you're not one of the five thousand people, I already sent that video. To, we're going to link it in the show notes. You need to take the time to to watch that to get a good understanding of the importance of empathy. And I I'm preaching through James right now, and in God's sovereignty. I was preaching James 2, 1 through 13 this past Sunday, the sin of partiality and favoritism. And I reminded him there in James 1, before we even get into that text. And as you're having these conversations, James has phenomenal advice, not just Dr. James Hawkins, but James, the half, <laughs> Jesus, uh, has phenomenal counsel when he says, be quick to listen, be slow to speak and be slow to anger. I think that has to be the way we approach this, is we've gotta be quick to listen, we've gotta be slow to speak back into it, and we gotta be slow to anger. And I think if we're quick to listen and slow to speak, it'll help us be slow to anger. And that, that empathy piece is so crucial. So watch the video, we'll have it linked there. Go check out A More Excellent Way. Check out all the stuff that James is doing and check out Healing Conversations. And let's keep being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Replant Bootcamp Podcast, a resource for replanters by replanters. If you enjoyed this episode or found it to be helpful for you and your ministry, please help us get the word out by subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a review on your favorite podcast listening platform. This podcast is sponsored by 180 Digital. 180 Digital is a team of design, development, and marketing experts that love working with churches big and small. Check out 180.church, O N E. -E 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 e-i-g-h-t-y dot church to learn more about how 180 can help your church move forward